Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hi, welcome back. I'm here today with Rob Scott. And Rob, you're joining us from Sydney, Australia. Is that right? Yes, Al. Welcome. And it's a pretty wet uh, Sydney at the moment, but um, it's good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely good. I mean, I saw you a few months ago. The world was very different uh, there in Sydney in March. And, you know, here we are. And you're there with Deloitte and you've been working with many firms on how to deal with not only this crisis, but how to deal with data in analyzing what is happening with workers and what's the best going forward strategy uh, with regards to return to workplace and safety and so forth. So if you would, do you mind introducing yourself and share a little bit about what you do there at Deloitte? Yeah, thanks, Al. And I predominantly focus in the human capital space, particularly around understanding the future of work and um, making sure that we really sort of help organizations, I guess, um, maximize the value of people in, in the work environment. Um, and of course, you know, COVID has brought in so many challenges for many organizations to, uh, I guess, continue maximizing people. And it's been a really interesting time to understand how organizations are dealing with people working at home and, and the implications of that, but also those organizations that are trying to bring people back into the work environment. Mm-hmm. Well, and you come to us with a very unique uh, background. And in fact, it was very, very unique when you first started this, when you, in that you have a tech background and a psychology background. You mind sharing a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, you know, I always tell people the story that um, I, st- I started off life um, wanting to be an aspirant um, architect and, and went to uni and started um, doing architecture and left because I, I really didn't like the, the mathematics behind it. But um, um, given that, it spurred me into sort of really taking a look at what I wanted to do. And I landed up um, studying psychology. And, but I always had this love for technology. And I, I had to ask my sort of lecturers back in those days whether I could include um, technology in my study. And they said, oh, no, you need to do a, you know, a different degree for that. So I ended up having to do two different degrees, um, one in psychology and, and one in, in information technologies, which you know, back then it was an odd thing to do. But today, it's absolutely um, such a powerful skill to have, particularly um, in the area of analytics where we can understand behavior but also understand um, you know the the numbers behind things so yeah that uh, that took me into a really interesting space in my career um, over the years to really have a foot in two different camps I guess one really understanding technology but two really understanding people you know with that you have an uncommonly clear way to connect the dots, um, how technology and the data within that technology is representing human behavior, some of the shortcomings, some of the biases that might be present. And I know you just uh, mentioned this on LinkedIn recently about the Dunning-Kruger effect uh, and how that is very prevalent uh, right now, not only as leaders adopt information, but how, you know, what's happening in politics uh, around the world, particularly here in the United States. So can you share about, you know, the value and need, frankly, of linking what's happening with data and technology and human behavior? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think we, um, we're moving into an era of um, away from technology to really sort of understanding human behavior at a much deeper level using modern technologies, you know, AI tools and, and machine learning tools. Um, so the link between human behavior and technology is just becoming far more prevalent in everything that we do and far more important. But having said that, you know, we, we run the risks of, of course, the, the normal ones that we see around bias and 
algorithms not really understanding themselves in terms of how decisions are made, which is a massive risk um, that we go down. And we've always have to remember that people are human beings and we can't treat people like machines and we shouldn't treat people like machines as much as sometimes we see it happening in terms of the de development of technology. So I do see uh, both technology and, and human behavior as complementary, uh, particularly in the work environment, but the risks inherent in that are, are vast. And I think we've seen some of that emerging, you know, during COVID in particular, um, both on the positive and, and, and negative side. Um, so yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm not one person that loves to only look at one thing. I think linking things together is critical, um, particularly when humans are involved, because, you know, we, we are such complex um, beings. We don't just simply um, do ABC, you know, your ABC is not necessarily my ABC and how you get from A to C is not necessarily the way that I get to to the same point. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, we personalize a lot uh, and I think technology is starting to move in that direction. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. And I believe uh, personally uh, that we haven't applied the level of creativity warranted to answer the questions leaders want or need to know. And when I say leader, it could be individuals, it could be team leads. Uh, so you know, that requires us really asking hard questions like, do we have the appropriate data? Or conversely, is the data that we have more distracting than actually helpful? So my question is, number one, do you see certain dynamics uh, either historically uh, or currently that have validated that perspective? Or are you in this place where, hey, we're we're actually doing this quite well and we're just underutilizing it because many organizations are still, well, yeah, we kind of do people analytics, but you know, we're not really, you know, getting after it. So another way to frame the question is, you know, what needs to take place to really get not only adoption, but get to a place where we have the insights that are meaningful, that are actionable, particularly with, you know, the pandemic raging around the world still here in the summer of 2020. It's a great question, um, Alan. Let me take an HR perspective, given that that's my, my background. I think COVID has shown us something really interesting that for many HR functions, they were found wanting with regards to analytics. And some of that came to the fore when they started to realize that even though they had some data, it wasn't complete. And I think it was the Rewards and Benefits Association in the UK that brought out some really interesting stats where they said around about sort of 50% um, of responding companies to, to their questionnaire said they were unable to move quickly with COVID responses because they lack data. But mm. for me, the second point that they made was actually more important. Around 53 or 55% of the respondents that did have data said they were unable to interpret the data correctly. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things COVID has taught the HR function is that we, to a large extent, are really unprepared with understanding how we are using data in, in, for people analytics. And of course, there's been lots of good stories to tell. So this has not only been you know, negative towards, towards HR. But um, one example that I saw, for example, was an organization that was using what I call proxy data. So they took something like the engagement survey data and applied that to dealing with wellness of people working at home. And mm -hmm. whilst there's a lot of similarities in some of the, the data sets and, and, and the data that you would use, they're quite different in terms of the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. So there's risk in terms of you know, how data is being used and to inadvertently sort of look look for answers, um, but find finding well finding answers, but which may be wrong. Um, 
but generally, you know, HR does need to have a step up in terms of their ability to um, understand data, to use data, and to make decisions um, using using data going forward. Yeah, let's let's dive in there a, a bit because I've seen many organizations do just what you're contending is that well, we've been doing this survey for the past you know three years or longer. We have benchmarks, we have normative data, we have all this stuff, and that's great. However. It invites the question, is that generating appropriate data? And if not, you know, do they have the processes and courage to actually change it and might be throw it away entirely or just might be a modification to really get the insights? And I've seen well-being uh, elevated much higher because it seems to be more appropriate. Even safety uh, here in the United States with Black Lives Matter and uh, unrest in, in urban areas. So you know, what do you think about that, the, the need to sometimes let go of data that was formerly of value and really create the space to identify what's going to be in fact appropriate to answer the questions leaders want or need to know at that particular moment. Yeah, and I, I think if I, if I take that question in its broader sense, I think many HR functions have actually gone down the track of trying to sort of become data analysts themselves and have failed. In fact, there was a stats, uh, some stat a couple of years ago that said the biggest turnover of data scientists <clears throat> happened in the areas of social science where they were working. So if they were hired by the HR function, often um, it went wrong. And predominantly because the HR person and the data scientist person were not speaking the same language. And mm -hmm. that comes from both sides, by the way. Um, some research that I did myself found that um, when uh, the amount of when a, when a data scientist gets hired into the HR function, the requirement for them to know something about the human resources uh, capability was round about sort of three to five percent in job adverts. Whereas when they moved into financial or procurement or other business areas, often that requirement of the data scientist to know something about that area was round about the 25 percent mark. So. Mm -hmm. Um, the HR person as well was often really not aware of what types of questions to be asking of the data scientist. So I think in many respects, the HR function needs to step back, as you were saying, and say, look, maybe we're not best at doing data science work ourselves, and we should either outsource that to a function within our business that, that's got better credibility and availability of resources to do that on our behalf, and you know, learn how to sort of um, work with data over time before bringing it in. Um, so it shouldn't just become the flavor of the month, oh, we need to have a data scientist in our midst um, straight away. Um, and I think, so, so there's a lot of learning in, in the HR space to take place, but I will call out that there's a lot of good work happening, particularly at uh, universities around the world where they're changing the fundamental structure of how social sciences is taught to have a much stronger emphasis on technology and understanding around things like data. Yeah, and, and to your point, it needs to happen, right? Because that's the reality that they're going to be dealing with when they go into organizations and work with employers that are yeah, the transactional systems that generate these data were not generated, correct me if I'm wrong, to be analyzed and generate insight. Yeah, they're not for a research project, in other words. They're there to stand up or improve a certain process. As soon as we start to aggregate all that data and try and you know, get some insight, you know, there are risks, there are opportunities, there are a bunch of 
you know, things that need to be acknowledged and uh, improved upon. So with that, you know, as we move forward in you working with multiple organizations, and obviously you have your structure of interpretation given your background, what's the ideal person to lead a people analytics capability? And do you think it should be a dedicated role within HR, or do you think it can be it maybe a hybrid role, someone who shares, you know, talent management, talent acquisition, or, or something like that? What are your thoughts there? I think it could be, you know, because we've seen a lot, lot of new generation um, HR and talent people coming out who absolutely have um, the, the deeper understanding of, of technology and, and, and data. However, mm -hmm. in those organizations where it doesn't exist, my, my recommendation to, to many of my clients is that um, bring somebody into the HR function that is a good analyst um, not necessarily a data scientist per se, but a person who can help analyze um, things and, and, and farm work out, but can be the translation between your leadership within HR and the actual requirement to assess data um, or to find um, things within data. So I think initially it's the, there's a person that's required to be a go-between. I don't think they need to be the leader um, of, of HR, but they certainly need to sort of have a passion um, mm -hmm. for understanding analytics and but also understanding people and people behavior um, and in many respects I think we've seen some some of that starting to happen in COVID where organizations have had to sort of deal with um, or HR functions of having to deal with how do we measure things like productivity of people who are working at home um, and you know what are the sort of dynamics around the the sort of wellness of people working at home. And, and those sort of things are quite fascinating and have spurred on, I think, some of the uh, this discussion or the importance that, you know, HR functions need to become far more um, sort of comfortable dealing with data and making decisions around data. Yeah, with that in mind, there's a research that Microsoft has done recently about how remote work is affecting their culture and their experience uh, among their workers, as well as productivity and a bunch of other interesting outcomes. Microsoft is Microsoft. Yeah, they have Microsoft Teams and workplace analytics, so they, they have the data and they also have the privacy uh, and communication to support the privacy and the ethical use of the data. So I, I really um, celebrate what Don Klinghoffer and her team are, are doing there. Uh, but again, Microsoft is Microsoft. And so there are a lot of organizations in, um, in my purview that, or that I see that are actually doing great. You know, they are, their people analytics functions are really getting higher level influence and they're meeting more frequently with a broader set of stakeholders. There are others, however, who have just almost been relegated to the back shop where you know they did not have the relationship equity. They did not have the systems knowledge and, and so forth in place. It's, and it's been pretty, there's very few that kind of just trudged along the middle, at, at least from my viewpoint. So given, you know, we're in summer of 2020, like we said, what are you seeing there with your clients in Australia and potentially elsewhere in the world? Do you see a similar dynamic unfolding? And for those who might be struggling, what would you recommend you'll be done? Yeah, so it is interesting. 
Interesting. And, you know, I'll touch, pick up on, on the, the point that you made about productivity. I think a lot of organizations during COVID have had to really sort of focus on, on productivity. And, you know, the first thing that came to the fore for many organizations was, do we trust our employees um, because we can't see them? And mm. uh, it's interesting. There were some interesting stats that came out around 35 to 40% of people two to three months ago were saying, yeah, absolutely, I want to go back to work um, and I want to go back to the office. Um, and the, they resurveyed that same group of people um, and that's dropped to around five to ten percent um, mm. of people and predominantly that's because the work from home the new normal um, is is uh, has they've learned to the digital tools they've learned how to operate remotely there's a sense of comfort coming in but also there's a shift to understanding that we are now living at work for those people who um, are, are working at home and that's brought down some really interesting dynamics but the interesting thing is that that productivity measure is in many cases a self-rating and so i think we are likely to see a new set of data emerging through new types of tools um, not the big brother tools that we've seen in terms of you know 15 second screenshots of everything you're doing that sort of stuff i think is is, is nonsense in many respects but real productivity measure uh, tools that that empower people to make sure that whilst at home, um, I stay both well and productive. So, you know, almost like your, your sort of smartwatch, which, which gives you some sort of hints around when you should get up and walk around. I think we're going to see a lot more sort of personalized tools and in that a lot more sort of really interesting data that analysts can work with to understand productivity um, from remote workers. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's one important thing I think we, we're going to see emerging, um, certainly in, in the next couple of months, Elle. Yeah, and I, I see it already. Absolutely. There's a, there's a few technologies. Uh, you know, time is limited out of uh, Prague and Cassiopeia uh, out of Israel is actually based here in the Bay Area and of course, workplace analytics. And there's a host of tools. That I absolutely and frankly, I think they're long overdue. I think they could have been applied in many respects uh, when we were actually in the workplace predominantly. Uh, but the need to your point is more pronounced uh, given the remote remote work um, dynamic that we're now in. Yeah, obviously this theme screams ethics and, and I would like to get your thoughts on that. But, we, but before we do, I want to uh, ask you, you know, about this. And we have a dynamic here in uh, North America where we have people who are obviously working from home, but they have kids running around behind them. They have a, uh, maybe elderly parents, uh, and they have certain constraints that formerly were not visible at all. Um, and a lot of times employers just didn't care. Uh, but now they are affecting productivity. And some are concerned that that's gonna affect their performance and thus their compensation and their career development. So do you have thoughts on that? Uh, you know, should we be thinking differently around career development and, and what excellence looks like and trying to accommodate these realities, these constraints that people have? Oh, and I, this, I love this topic, um, El, because absolutely, I think careers and types of careers and all that sort of stuff is up for a massive change. You just mm -hmm. think um, once we've, because we become so comfortable working from home, um, I might take a role in the US, but I don't physically have to work in the US anymore. So it's about, I think the opportunity to have the right person in the job through remote working has suddenly taken on a, a lot of um, interest in terms of how that can happen. But more to your point, I, I do think um, we, Firstly, 
are having to change the way that leaders think. Um, the reality of people working at home and kids running around, cat running across the keyboard, as we've seen, you know, all those sort of things really talk to who we are, though, as humans. And this is real for us. And in many respects, our work environments of the past were sort of closed off to what real human life was all about. So I think we've seen a leadership change that's necessary, one that's humane, a lot more caring, a lot more community focused and compassionate. And I also think leaders are needing to understand that they have to adjust the way that they're going to recognize certain staff. Um, because there's a trend that's happening, and that's that there's a rise in resentment between the them versus us. And it's not management versus employees or the, the wealthy versus the, the average employer anymore. It's about the work from home versus the work on site. Mm -hmm. And that, that sort of shift that's taking place um, is creating a fractured workforce in many respects. And leadership absolutely needs to be on top of that in terms of how we're going to recognize people um, differently. Um, so we can break down that resentment and break down that that them versus us. But, so I think a lot of what you, you you mentioned comes back to how management, supervisory, and leadership styles are going to have to adjust behaviorally um, to to allay fears in people. Because yep, there's a lot of fear out there. You know, am I still going to have a job in three months' time if I'm still working at home? Um, and those organisations that I've seen doing really well is where that leadership has adjusted to that and the recognition that we need to behave differently as leaders towards our employees. Yeah, I mean, thank you for saying that. And I 100% agree. And it implied or underpinning everything that you just shared is the need to innovate. When you talk about think differently, that means that we have to ultimately do things differently. And it might be, you know, early days in the whole scheme of things, and I, I believe it is. Uh, however, you know, the fact that we're working from home went like that. Uh, the fact that we're studying things differently, that's edged along, but the you know, process around recognition and compensation, I see them on the table of discussion, but I haven't seen them change yet. And again, there's no criticism here. It's, it's just an observation. But where I want to land this with a question is, there needs to be this open-mindedness, this appetite for innovation. And I have this fear that some who've been in a role for 20, 30 plus years were, you know, have a cover your ass mentality and will, won't take the leap necessary to really create a culture that's fair, equitable, that you know, really engages people in ways that will you know, have them be focused and productive you know, when they're in the home. So can you speak to your kind of basis for innovation and where that change is actually going to come from? What, what needs to happen? Yeah, and let, let me cite a, um, a, a client discussion that I had a few weeks ago, um, well, a probably a couple of months ago now. Um, one of the clients um, had to really quickly move a lot of their staff to front-end roles. As COVID was rolling out, they needed a lot more front-end people um, to deal with the phones, take people's calls and things like that. And normally that was a three-week training course that took place for a person to learn to become a front-end um, staff member. But COVID pushed them into a situation that that wasn't possible. So they, they did the same course in two days with a little bit of mentoring. And the aha effect was Oh heck, we got the same outcome. So I think there's this there's this massive opportunity that exists, not just in the HR space, 
but I'll use the, that example carrying on that suddenly we've got, hang on a minute, we did, did what took three weeks in two days and we had the same outcome. Surely the logical extension from that is what else are we, have we been doing that doesn't have to take that long and can we optimize a lot better? So I think the innovation is going to come out um, spurred on by things like COVID and not just in the technology space, but things like basic training and development of people, how we, you know, do things is, is going to rapid change. And that was a really good aha moment for this particular client that thought, oh, wow, you know, people can change a lot quicker um, than what we thought. And we don't need to sort of prolong things unnecessarily. So great insight into people's ability to, to change uh, uh, rapidly. But what I would also say, Al, is that I think we're going to see a, a great proliferation of certain types of um, technologies coming to the fore. You know, the things like uh, ro robots coming in, uh, cleaning robots. So I was reading about Violet. I don't know if you know about Violet, but she's a, an ultraviolet deep cleaner. It's basically like a big light bulb on wheels. And wow. She goes around <laughs> emitting ultraviolet light um, and doing deep cleaning. Um, she's quick and safe and um, she's not necessarily replacing uh, human cleaners. You still need to you know, clean the, the nooks and crannies. But I think we're going to become a lot more comfortable with seeing physical type robots in the work environment. Screening robots are another one, particularly in healthcare facilities. So before I walk in, it's going to take my temperature. It's going to check if I've got a mask. It might, may ask me a number of questions. Um, and the other one that I think we're going to see a rise of is telepresence robots, which have been around for a while, but was a little bit of a kind of a fad, I guess, yep. where you know, I can have an iPod on wheels, basically, but it's an avatar for me in a real physical workspace that I can control remotely from home or wherever. Um, but it builds on, you know, it helps, it'll certainly help certain people um, stay attached and, and feel like they're really part of, a, of an environment. So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a great amount of innovation that's, that's coming out of um, COVID or it's been spurred on by COVID. You know, I, I love what you're sharing, and there's you know, a host of ways we can go down that particular theme around the future of work and, and you know, what is our capacity going to be as human beings relative to robotic automation, AI, and, and so forth. So if you want to touch on that uh, before we wrap, please do so, because I'm interested to talk about that in relation to ethics in particular, but again, that can be a whole uh, discussion in and of itself. But you are really uniquely qualified to answer this particular question in that if we are looking at data, we as human beings have an emotional response to that uh, as individuals, particularly when it reflects on our decision making, and even in groups when we're influencing a culture, for example. In other words, if I'm in a room as an executive leadership team and I'm looking at this workforce data, there's people around the room and could be a virtual room now <laughs> where they're having an emotional response to it. And historically, uh, I've seen an underappreciation of that. It's like, there's the facts. Everyone should be okay with it. We, you know, there's a clear direction moving forward. However, you know, there are resistors. There are you know, feelings that uh, come up and they might be uh, running against a myth. They might be running against what someone has experienced for the last 20 or 30 years. So my question again is, you know, what's your coaching or advice to those who have not really addressed that reality that as we look at dashboards and reports and infographics and all these things that we are having an emotional response to them and that's going to affect the decisions that uh, we make as an outcome. 
Great question, Alan. Again, another area that I absolutely love, but I think, and, and it does tie in all those things that you, you said, including ethics. The one thing that we cannot um, change is that everybody is unique and everybody's reaction to many things is going to be unique. And whilst there are certainly universal um, behaviors that, uh, that we exhibit as human beings, the way that you and I perceive the world and um, approach the world is vastly different, which is why I've always said that we've seen a shift towards personalization of technologies or the ability to, to individualize or personalize technologies. And that's uh, where I particularly call out a risk around some of the the tools that are emerging that are AI driven and have got um, engines in the background that are making decisions, things like, for example, around um, recruitment or recruitment screening. Um, I'm, I'm really scared about that kind of uh, stuff, particularly when the user who happens to be the HR function cannot fully explain a decision that has been made. It's a risk for people. But I think in many respects may very well be losing a lot of people who simply may have been uncomfortable in front of a, um, a screen talking to somebody via um, a Skype call or something, or some robotic tool assessing their facial recognition um, or gestures in a negative way, which it may not have been. So we have to be really careful that the way you perceive something and the, the way that I perceive something is very different. And I've, my recommendation to many organizations is when you can offer choice, you should, because choice is absolutely important to human beings, particularly in, in, in Western societies, not necessarily all um, the whole world. But in Western society, choice is really important mm -hmm. to motivation, but also the ability to move forward and, and to keep me doing the things, uh, keep me interested in what I'm doing. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's that's a whole other discussion, to be, to be honest. But ethically, it's important that we approach these technologies right. But choice to, to people is something that is, is hypercritical, I think, moving forward. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. And you know, as we start to wrap up, I mean, it speaks to the fact that there are biases that are embedded in the data. There's biases that we have as human beings. And not only do we have to call those out, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have to have the creativity and open-mindedness to either push them to the side and say that's not appropriate or create new ways of either capturing data, analyzing data, creating new data. Is that what you would advocate that we have create the space to explore what's appropriate and what's not? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll use my, my sort of one of my COVID uh, things that I've been learning from home, uh, learning Australian sign language was, I've been started three months ago. And um, I'll tie it back to what you mentioned right in the beginning, El, as well, in terms of the, the Dunning-Kruger effect, that once you start learning and, and, and apply your mind to something, it's, you, you immerse yourself in a new world. But in that immersion phase, you also realize that you know very little. And, um, you know, initially, whilst you think, you know, a great, you know, 50, 100 words in, in terms of Australian sign language, I think I'm, I'm going great. The longer you go down the path, the more you realize that the less you know. And so that's really important in terms of how we move forward in terms of understanding data, understanding the way that we, we work with data is that get immersed, getting getting really involved. And that's my challenge to, to all people who want to do something with, with things like data analytics the more you immerse yourself, you are going to go through a phase of being concerned that you don't know a lot, but the value that it brings out in terms of understanding will, will really stand you in, in a strong seat going forward. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. And just to play that back for our listeners is that 
as a leader, whether it be an HR, business, you know, IT, you know, even data science, it's, it's not just, hey, go do that. You have to be involved in the process. You have to understand the underpinnings of the work. You might not be involved in doing the work, being the data scientist or do the data architecture and all that, but you need to get involved. You're not just a customer, but you're an active participant in the creation process. Would you echo that? Yeah, absolutely. And it reminds me many years ago, um, I remember one of my uh, team saying to me, hey, Rob, how come you're so good at Excel? Can you, can you teach me things at Excel? And I said, no, until you find a problem, I'll, I won't teach you. Because often, you know, in theory, trying to learn something like Excel could be a complete waste of time. But if I have a very specific problem that I'm trying to solve, your learning becomes so much more richer. And it's the same with anything that we want to learn. Find a problem that you're trying to solve and the tools and mechanisms that you have around you um, that you apply to that problem uh, will become a far more richer experience. Rob, it gave me a chill. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's absolutely spot on and a beautiful uh, advice. And uh, yeah, thank you for sharing today. Any closing comments as we start to wrap? No, um, it's been a, a great uh, talking to you, Elle, and um, um, it, it's been exciting. I think it's an exciting space that we're in, both from an HR point of view, from a data analytics point of view, and from really understanding human behavior in, in pandemics like we have. Um, it can only get better, and I think there's a lot of great opportunities um, that we're going to see coming out of this. Well, I, I, of course, share your enthusiasm and I, I learn from you each time we talk. So thank you for sharing today and uh, look forward to seeing you in person before too long. Unfortunately, uh, this is going to be our reality for the foreseeable future. But, you know, again, thanks for your contributions to the space and thanks for doing what you do and being who you are. Really appreciate you. Thanks, Al, and uh, nice to meet you. All right. See you. <laughs> thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.